Hi, and welcome to Office Hours. This is a podcast hosted by Kevin Vela and Aaron Turway from Vela Wood. We are reviewing Venture Deals, a book by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. Today, we're talking about Chapter 10, How Venture Capital Funds Work. Now, if this is your first time listening to an Office Hours podcast, note that Office Hours is the title of the podcast we use for several different theme podcasts related, roughly related to the practice of law or legal activities. This particular series is reviewing the book Venture Deals. So hopefully you're keeping up with it and you've already read already read chapters one through nine. Aaron, I will say I have spoken to a number of clients who are following along or this is a great way to get new clients who come in and they start asking a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. This is a great way to get them out the door. Yeah. So you know what? Just go listen to all these Not things. Not that we would ever want to no. get them out the door. No, we're being efficient with their cash right. when we do that. Right. So I, I think there's a tremendous value in what we're doing. The, the feedback's been fantastic. We're almost to a thousand downloads. Well, f- for a significant period of time. Well, not that significant, less than a month. Now I realize we just turned on our tracking recently. So I'm sure in the history of our podcasting here at VW, it's probably closer to the hundreds of thousands. Millions. Millions. I think easily. But this, since we just turned this on a month ago, very close to a thousand. Who will be the lucky thousandth? I don't know. Well, and who's going to be the lucky advertiser that gets in on this sweet deal? That's right. Email us. You want to advertise. Right now, we will do the first one for free. No charge. So let us know if you want to advertise. Podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. Let's talk about Chapter 10, Aaron. Yes. When we stepped into this meeting, into our pre-show meeting, which was about 30 seconds ago. Right. I said I think this is a really boring chapter for entrepreneurs. You had a different take on that? Yeah, I think it I think it, it's an interesting chapter for entrepreneurs. It's less of the minutia and more of a here's how a VC firm works and here's, you know, here's where their interests are and here's how they're, you know, incentivized and so you know, if you want to get inside of a VC's head, I think this is a chapter that's really useful for that. We reached out to a handful of VCs kind of late. I'll, I'll admit that that's my fault and give them a whole lot of heads up to try and interview some actual VCs for this chapter. They all were very interested in doing it. The, the timing didn't work out. We wanted to get this out. We got a lot of people who are waiting for the next episode. But I will make a commitment that in the next couple of weeks, we will follow up with at least one or two of those and just do a quick interview to ask them about how their VC fund works so we can append this. I uh, will just have quick interviews we can append this thought and add it you know a little bonus content for you free well and you can provide a little a little insight into how fun sure full disclosure i am a co-manager of blossom street ventures originally known as the dan fund we're on our fourth fund so we do operate as a vc and i love that perspective that we have uh, that i'm able to provide to the fund when we're making investments because we do so many venture deals on company side but i feel like aaron you get a lot of that as well since we do represent a handful of vcs and i always tell people the ratio of company side to investor side we're usually about you know four to one right 80 percent company side 20 percent investor side of that investor side most of those are vcs sometimes it's just hnws or um the, the random angel network from right. Dubai or not Dubai, excuse me, uh, you know, Hyderabad, like we did earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got great perspective on how actually funds work, but this is really more not talking about how they pick their deals or what their investment meetings look like, but how a fund is structured. Aaron, you want to give just a broad overview of how a venture capital fund is structured? 
Uh, yeah, uh, there's the look at page 130. There's the sort of the management company. That's the overarching company. It's the company that's going to have the, its name on all the business cards. You'll know the name. Now, is the management company per fund? Like, does each no. fund have its own management company? No. So this is this is one management company that might have you know a number of different funds beneath it, and then from that management company, you're going to get. You know, you'll have a, a general partner entity that's usually structured as an LLC. That LLC will be the general partner of a limited partnership, which will then have several individual investors that are known as limited partners. So when a fund writes a check into a company, which of these entities, if we're looking at page 130, Aaron, you've got the fund one, yep. let's just call it Aaron and Kevin's fund one LP. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the general partner, then the management company. Who's writing the check? The limited partnership. So the fund limited one LP. So Kevin and Aaron fund one LP is writing the check to the company. Right. And then the investors are writing their investment checks to who? To fund one LP. Agreed. And I think an important point here is the management company can manage multiple funds. For example, the fund that I manage, we have an investment management entity. We use that across each one. We run certain expenses through there or it you know, gets reimbursed for expenses. Um, also that fund management entity has to register as an investment advisor. You know, we, we operate under certain exemptions, but you still have to have to register. So anything further than that, we're probably getting into too much, you know, legal technicalities, but yes, traditionally that is how it works. So the fund management group would be the name of the management entity. That's what you usually see on the business cards. And there'll be multiple funds. A management group is probably managing several different funds. Now our particular fund, Blossom Street Ventures, we have a very short investment period. We have kind of an interesting thesis. We turn everything around in a year. We raise our money. We try and go out and do three to five investments in a year and then go out and do the next one. Now that fund, so we're on fund four. Funds one, two, and three are still alive because we have investments that are still active. We're not collecting any fees from our investors for those funds. Our fund operates on a zero management fee structure, which is pretty typical for small early or small newer funds that you know we see here and as we get out there and represent larger, more well-established funds. We'll take a management fee. And we'll talk about that in a sec. Our fund has a zero management fee structure. So really we had set aside some funds for expenses in years, you know, for that first year. And we use that to pay salary of, of Sammy, who's our only employee. After that, Sammy's really working for free and he has to continue to manage the portfolio companies. He's on the board of some of them. He gets communications from them and sends them out to the investors. He manages all the tax filings dealing with the investors. You know, we handle all the legal filings dealing with the investors. So there are certain activities that continue after the investment period is over. And that's why there's usually a management fee that persists or continues. But for earlier stage funds, it's not uncommon for them not to have a significant management fee. Okay, so let's let's get back to how firms raise money, Aaron, and just talk about the management fee since I brought that up. Yeah. So a typical management fee, they said here is 1.5 to 2.5%. For a larger fund, that's that's, uh, consistent with what we see. Smaller funds, I see 1%, I see less. And I think the fund managers want to go out there and prove themselves. As Sammy and I, we believe we've done, we've been successful in raising a couple of funds now. But you go out there and you say, look, good faith, we're going to work hard, we're not going to take any salary out of this thing other than expenses, right? Uh, The first year, Sammy took no salary. Years two, three, and four, he took a, a modest salary, but we had no fee on top of that. You know, we didn't take, I didn't take any salary for the, for the work that, that I did. And then the expenses would come out of an expense budget. And those are things like flights for due diligence trips, hotel, maybe some marketing reimbursement, you know, uh, you know, whatever, some other miscellaneous expenses. Typically, if you are taking a management fee, 
all those expenses just come out of the management fee. You wouldn't have a dedicated expense budget. So the venture VCs can make money. When, one thing that's interesting about management fees, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is those management fees are in place for every year of the investment period, right? Yeah. So every year that the fund is actually making investments, which is usually five years, typical fund is going to be seven to 12 years. You have your investment period and then you have what's known as your harvest or just the, you know, you're letting your investments mature. The fund's taking that 2% every year. So if you have a million dollar fund over five years, those managers are taking $2 million out of that every year. And then a lot of times the management fee doesn't go to zero. It just starts to go down. It just starts to decrease. So the example that they gave here is over a 10-year fund, the total management fee is probably 15%. So that means that $15 million is going out to the fund managers. That seems like a lot. Yes, it is a lot. But there's a lot of expenses that go in there as well. You know, most of the funds that we go and visit, Aaron, over in Old Parkland, you know, that, uh, that office space isn't cheap. Yeah. So, and you know, they like to fly, fly first class and stuff like that. Uh, they're not flying first class. They have private planes. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's better than first class. So the 15%, just think about that. That means they already got to recoup $15 million in expenses before they can get to $100 million, right? To, to be able to repay their investors. So there's the management fee. And then there's also this concept of carried interest. Aaron, you want to kind of give an overview of carried interest? Yeah, carried interest is just once the investments start making returns they start exiting or being acquired or you know ipoing and by investments we mean the portfolio portfolio investments once those start to hit the typical carried interest structure is once the limited partners have been repaid their money then you know let's say that the fund gets a 20 percent carried interest so once the lps have been repaid their uh, contributions in full then everything else gets split the fund gets 20% of all of the other limited partners, the investors into the fund get 80%. You know, their example, that's ex- that's the exact example they gave here on page 134. But I think they simplified it in two, because there's two things that we typically see. One is a preferred return. You almost always see a preferred return. It's basically an interest, an interest payment. Now it's not an obligation. It's a payment if, if funds are available uh, between six and 8%. So usually, and this is the way our fund works, you pay the preferred return first, then the money back to investors. So right. now the investors are, are whole plus six to eight percent per annum, right? right? For the amount of time that the fund has held their money. Then what you oftentimes see, I'm surprised they didn't the address it up. here, is a catch up, yeah. right? So you usually see a catch up, which means let's just give the example where you raised a hundred million dollars and you've paid out, try and keep the math easy, twenty million dollars in interest, which would be an obscene amount of interest, but yeah. let's just assume that are in preferred returns. So now the investors received $120 million. What you have to do is do a catch up such that management gets the next funds until they have received 20% of total distributions. So it'd be 120 million equals 80% of X, right? right? So that would be, I can't do the math in my head, but somewhere around 20, $24 million. The next, that amount of money to get the invest, the management team up to 20% of total distributions is known as the catch up. And then after that, it's 80-20. I want to make sure that our listeners don't think that we're talking about the condiment. We're talking about a catch-up. It catches the fund up. Is that your favorite condiment? Uh, no. Mustard. Is your favorite? Mustard. Mustard? Yes. Mine is salsa. Is salsa condiment? I mean, I think for you, it's one of your principal food groups. That's right. <laughs> okay. I use that opportunity to do some quick math. A 20% catch-up on $120 million paid out to investors would be $30 million. And the way you look at that is the next $30 million would then go to management. So $150 million has been distributed, $120 to investors, which is 80% of $150, $30 million to management, which is 
uh, 20% of 150, and then every dollar after that gets split 80-20. Almost universally, you see 80-20, except the larger funds, they get 30% carry because they're so good. And I seem to remember an episode of Billions, now that's a hedge fund, not a venture fund, but where they had a 30 or 35% carried interest because they're billions. Uh, it's uh, Axe Capital, and that's what they can do. Which I think is sort of interesting, too, because you would think that the better reputation an investor or a fund has the bigger their their results will be and so they should be making more money off of the same percentage carried interest right. but they man, can just if, demand a higher they can carried demand interest it, then good for them quick plug for billions an amazing show yes. <laughs> Aaron and I love it can't wait for the next season okay so back to that's carried interest so the way the management's get management team gets paid is through the management fee if there is one, sometimes it's just an expense budget. Sometimes it's zero, right? Sometimes the management team just fronts all the expenses themselves just to get going and prove themselves to their investors. And then the carried interest. Carried interest, same concept. You see it in real estate deals all the time, restaurant deals, a lot of other kind of more traditional investment opportunities. Carried interest exists there. But in real estate deals, at least, something they call it something different. Isn't it like a promote. Yeah, they call yeah, it the yeah, promote, promote generally. Yeah. But it's the same thing. Right. Okay, before we... Get off of the management fee topic, Aaron. Let's talk about clawbacks and how that might work. If you have a long fund, a fund with a long investment horizon, and not all the money has been invested yet, and then there's a significant exit, the managers might say, let's go ahead and calculate. Pretty typically, they're going to do this. Let's go ahead and calculate our percentages, right? Let's go ahead and get our catch-up in here if there's a catch-up. Let's get our carried interest in here, and let's take our money out. So they give an example here to where a fund that had raised 100 million, they've invested 50 million, they've returned 80 million, so the managers say, hey, look, we're up $30 million, let's go ahead and take our money out of this. But then the next 50 million has a return of zero. So now you're at an $80 million return for a $100 million fund, which means the manager should have zero carried interest, but we've already distributed that 30 million back out to the management. The process of going getting that back from your management team is called a clawback. I think... Practically speaking, very, very difficult to do so. How do you think, Aaron, you know, for our clients, I think the people out there listening, our clients or our entrepreneurs who have companies that they want to talk to VCs, how does this affect them? You know, what, what, what differences make to them or what questions should they be asking? Well, I think if they've taken an investment from a VC and they're expecting follow-on investments, if the VC has had to undertake a clawback, I think it's going to make things a little uh, stickier. It's going to create some tension within the the, the mm-hmm. fund. And maybe if you're an entrepreneur and you're expecting or you're counting on those follow-on funds, that might not be around. Or if the fund's going into a long period of, okay, we want to invest, but we need to do one more meeting or a little bit more due diligence. There's some things going on behind the scenes. And we get this with a lot of our companies, right? Where you get a VC that's very interested. And then all of a sudden, we don't hear from for a week, two weeks. Now it's been a month, a month and a half after when we thought we were going to be drafting documents. We should have had legals done by now. There's probably something like this going on in the background, right? And so that leads us into capital calls. Let's talk about where they raise money from and then talk about how capital calls work. Yaren, you want to talk about where who VCs are raising from? I mean, they're raising from all over the place, wherever they can can find people who want to invest in their fund. Uh, you know, and, and you say people, right? People, entities. It could be you know high net worth individuals. It could be a public pension fund or whatever. They are raising. You know, they're they're not 
desperate by any means, but you know, if if you have a chunk of change to invest, I think a VC will will entertain that. So let's give a brief background, a little bit of brief background on how this works. Let's say you have the Dallas Fire and Pension Fund, and let's say that they still have money because they didn't put it all into the uh, which building was that Museum Tower? The Museum Tower. Thank you. So the Dallas uh, Fire and Pension Fund might be a billion dollar fund. And what they do is they have an investment manager, probably a team who invests that, and they use those returns to pay out pensions or pay out obligations due under the fund. Hopefully, the returns are more than the obligations, so the fund continues to grow. This is how most endowment funds work, right? Your Ivy League schools and your add your Stanford in there have you know multi billion dollar endowment funds that just return tons and tons of money, and that's why they can afford to send out so many scholarships each year because these funds are just earning so much. Well, those funds, let's just say it's a billion dollar fund. The fund managers say, let's invest X percent into real estate. They've probably got a lot, a very high percent into treasury or bonds, T-bills or bonds, something very safe. Let's put 20 or 25% in real estate. I'm making up these numbers, guys. And let's go ahead and commit 3% to venture or 5% to venture just because that's an interesting asset class. We're going to put just a little bit in there so the risk isn't too high, but maybe we get a big return. Probably the riskiest asset class. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely the riskiest a- asset class. So if they say 5%, they now have $50 million and they will go and shop around with the biggest and best venture funds in the country and they will see how much they want to allocate to one fund or across multiple funds. Now, that's an example of just one type of institution. There are all types of institutions, guys. Like Aaron said, there's pension funds, there's teachers retirement funds, there are pension funds from large corporations, there are... Uh, banks who have different funds set up. Family offices. Family offices is a big one. You know, family office is generally a, a family that's created significant wealth. Uh, my understanding is usually until you get to $30, $50 million in net worth, you're probably not creating a family office. Um, $100 million before you're probably hiring someone. But there's, from my uh, recollection or what I've been told, there's a couple thousand family offices across the country. Those guys do these things. And these also just have high net worth individuals, Right. If I'm a guy that's had a successful exit, I got a couple million bucks to play with, I don't want to do it myself. I might put a million dollars into a venture fund. So that's where these guys get their money from. They're not getting them from $25,000 angel investors, just too small, not worth their time. I would say typically, you know, a decent sized venture fund, a $100 million fund, they probably have a five to $10 million minimum. They might be letting some of their buddies leak in or limp in at a million bucks, $500,000, but few and far between. And a lot of funds, whether it's a real estate fund or a hedge fund or private equity fund, the way they raise money are structured pretty similarly. Now, you have two types of funds. You have a a capital call structure and you have a committed capital structure. Excuse me, not committed capital, a, a blind pool or fully funded structure. In a capital call structure... The investors were often uh, referred to as LPs. Aaron, you want to tell what LPs are? Limited partners. LPs are limited partners. Most of these things are structured as limited partnerships. They can be LLCs, but they're usually limited partnerships. And, and just to explain, limit in a in a limited partnership structure, a limited partnership is required to have one general partner. That's a that's a party, whether it's a person or an entity, that will have liability obligations that's the operator mm-hmm. and then all of the investors or the limited partners um they have limited liability they're, li- they're, they're a partner in the entity but they're limited in their liability so what happens is these lps they subscribe to the fund okay i'm in for 10 million dollars i'm in for 50 million dollars but the fund doesn't necessarily ask for the money up front it's usually on a capital call structure we're going to call a million we're going to call a certain percentage due every year 
or we're going to call you when we have investments available. Usually they do it in tranches. Okay, we're going to call 25%. We're going to go do those investments. We're going to, after those investments are done, that might be a year, it might be two years. We're going to do another 25%, so on and so forth. But note that that, does, that means the fund doesn't have the money in its bank account or it might for the first company that invests in with that tranche. But by the time it gets to the third company, they might be in a situation where they have to go do another capital call. So this is another reason why sometimes you see investors delaying things. A lot of angel groups are structured this way where they do a capital call structure. And in general, capital call structure is fine, but you run the risk that the LP runs out of money. And they give some examples here in 2008 during the recession. A lot of this happened. If the LP runs out of money, they have legal recourse to sue them, but are you really going to sue you know, the Stanford pension system? Well, Stanford pension system wouldn't run out of money, but you're going to sue an entity that can't fund its commitment? Yeah, and I, I don't think that the inclination would be to sue, but I think, you know, they mentioned there's a, you know, a hot secondary market yeah, you for get them these to LP interests. Sell their interest. So just know that that exists. There's really nothing you can do about it. Most of these funds are capital call structures, but if there's delays, that might be why. Well, and I think that just goes to help explain to the entrepreneurs, there are a number of different reasons why a VC might be taking time on something. And it's not always because they're not going to invest. It could just be they have some internal politics that they need to address before they can consider your investment. Now, in a fully funded or a blind pool situation, that means that all of the investors have funded their investment up front. This is the way our fund works. And then the investment committee or the investment managers, however it's structured, they make the investment decisions. I also want to note that in the context of a angel fund or a smaller round, you're much more likely to run into issues where the investors on a capital call situation have liquidity issues. That's just much more likely at a smaller level than at a larger level. So just keep that in mind if you're raising a small round. But anyway, so that's where these funds get their money from, and that's what the structure looks like. Uh, let's talk about a couple other points they made here in the chapter, Aaron. One thing is how time impacts fund activity. And I, I thought this box on 138 was interesting. It talked about the entrepreneur's perspective. One important thing to understand about your prospective investor's fund is how old the fund is, right? If the fund just got kicked off, there's probably a lot of energy, a lot of uh they call it dry powder, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning powder left to be used for an explosive investment. As the fund gets older, you might have some of the management team has left or moved on to new things. They might be past their investment period or winding down. They're only going to make one investment left. They might not have the same energy that they had before. They might be actively raising another fund right. yeah. as like, the fund gets older. Like they point out on 140, if they've usually it's a 70% threshold. If they've if they've you know committed 70% of their existing fund, they can usually start raising a second fund or a next fund. So the life of the fund, and then also I think another point that goes right along with that is how much does the fund have in reserves? Because a lot of these funds will make these promises, we're going to invest now and then we want to be able to lead your next round. Well, then ask them how much do you have in reserves and what's your investment philosophy, your investment strategy for those reserve funds? A lot of funds we know, Aaron, they, they do carve out and this is what they sell to their investors and this is how they get held to this you know, to this understanding, they do carve out a percentage for initial funding, then a percentage for follow-on funding, which we like to see. I think that's healthy. You know, if you have, you want to go bet on three to five horses, and then you want to have enough to really back the one or two that are killing it a year or two later. So knowing how much the fund has in reserves can be important. 
let's talk, Aaron, about corporate venture capital and yeah. strategic investors because we're seeing a lot of that right now with our clients. I thought that was this was interesting. You know, what are your thoughts, Aaron, on corporate venture capital and strategic investors? I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm surprised that we don't see more of it. You know, I know of a handful of big companies in Dallas that don't have a corporate venture capital arm, which if you want to, you know, if you're a big corporation, you want to be sort of at the forefront of technology that might be able to benefit your corporation. I don't think there's a better way to see it early and possibly be able to capitalize on it than, you know, having corporate venture capital arm and you can invest in it and you can, you know, sort of if it, if, if you're a big enough player or big enough investor, you can sort of help guide them to develop what you want them to develop. I agree with Aaron. I, the reason why we're not seeing more of it, or really, I think we will see more of it, right? I think things are going on behind the scenes at large corporations. They're all saying, Hey man, instead of spending so much money on R and D, we need to take a piece of this and turn it into corporate venture. Let's get a little group to go out and find opportunities. Let me talk about a, a little bit, a little nuanced difference between corporate venture capital and strategic investors. So 7-Eleven has a corporate venture capital group. We don't know them directly, but we see them talking at events and sponsoring events. 7-Eleven's corporate venture group is just looking for things that are interesting to 7-Eleven. So let's say there's a better way to scan products. Let's say there is a way for people to check themselves out automatically. Or to like revolutionize Slurpees. That's right. There's a better way to pour Slurpee. They're looking for those things. They're going to invest in those things because that could help them one piece of their business. A strategic investment would be 7-Eleven taking ownership in a mobile convenience store company. Let's just say there was an autonomous van that drove around and parked in our parking lot once a day and a door opened up and you could go and you could pick out stuff that was stocked by 7-Eleven. That would make a lot of money here. It's a good idea, yeah. right? That would be more of a strategic investment because 7-Eleven in the previous example, they're just dabbling in different things for things that might be interesting in the future or they could help to fund that company's growth because, hey, we're going to give this company money, the Slurpee idea, we're going to give this company corporate VC money so that they can go and improve their Slurpee machine and that'll make it better for us because we can buy their improved Slurpee machine. A strategic investment says, I'm going to go do this because I want to watch you really, really closely because I might want to buy you. Now, that can be great from one perspective. Let's just say you're the mobile convenience store delivery guy. Because now your partner is 7-Eleven and they're going to stock all your stuff. But man, you got to hope that that relationship with 7-Eleven works out. Because if not, it's going to be really hard for you to go to you know, Quick Mart or right. what was uh, Apu's uh, uh, quick serve in, in The Simpsons? Yeah. It'll come to us. But I'm having a hard time thinking about other Bucky's. Quickie Mart. Quickie Mart. That's it. So just keep that in mind. When you do a strategic, you really are marrying that person. And you're really putting a lot of your eggs into that basket. There was a line on 143 that basically they said you never want to give a corporate venture capital a right of first refusal on acquiring your company. I thought that was interesting. I I mean, I can see how it would cause some issues um, with any other potential acquirer if they know, hey, this corporate venture group has right of first refusal. They get to basically see what we offer and decide whether or not they think that's a good deal. But uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think the reason why they're saying that is because the mechanics of actually enforcing that get right. really, really messy yeah. and you can piss off the acquirer. Okay. So let's assume that Aaron, I've got my mobile delivery stand and 7-Eleven has a right of first refusal and you represent a poo and quickie Mart. 
and you come and say, you want to buy me for $10 million. I'm going to say, awesome. Let me run to 7-Eleven and take them this offer and I'll get back to you in 30 days. Yeah. What are you going to say? Say, screw you. I'll go buy your competitor. That's correct. Screw you. I'm not going to wait 30 days or I'm not going to let you use my offer to leverage a better offer from 7-Eleven. That's the argument. That's what we've seen. When we do do this, because there have been times when people, the corporate venture capital or the strategic investors have insisted on these things. If you get in a situation and this is going to be a deal killer, then what you do is you put in a very quick period, three days, maybe five days, and you make it absolute airtight that they are not going to release the terms of that to anyone else. Because if it's only three or five days and you know, Quickie Mart makes an offer for my mobile convenience store idea. I can just say, sure, let me talk about talk it over with my board and I'll get back to you. If it's 30 days, you're gonna say, Why the heck have you not contacted me in 30 days? Right. right. And I can run to 7 Eleven and say, We gotta look at this right now. You got three days. So keep that in mind. That's where your venture uh, attorney can come in very, very handy. Uh, let's see. They talked about fiduciary duties and the implications for the entrepreneur. I think it's interesting. You just got to realize that every once in a while, when things go sideways in a company, we saw this recently, Aaron, with one of our um, one of our funds portfolio companies. The directors start to get skittish because they start to worry about their fiduciary duties. And at point that point in time, they start calling the lawyers and say, "Can you really lay out for me what I can be doing?" You know, they want to act in the best interest of the company. However. They don't want to face a lawsuit. They don't even want to face angry investors, right? right. You know, if you if you got a fund, you've got your investors in the fund, and the fund is on the board of a company, and that company starts to go sideways, that whoever has that board director seat just needs to visit with their counsel, make sure they understand what they should and shouldn't be doing. And I think that's part of the reason why some of these investors will take the right to appoint a board seat, but not actually fill it until, you know, when they see it it's appropriate to do so. That's correct. A lot of investors will just take a right. They'll be a board observer. They'll sit down in the meetings, listen in, but they don't necessarily need a board seat. All right. I think that wraps up chapter 10, how venture capital funds work. We went way longer on a chapter that I didn't think was gonna be very exciting, but there's a lot to talk about there. As always, we've got show notes. There's a link in the iTunes episode description. If you're on iTunes, hopefully you've rated, reviewed, and subscribed on iTunes to the Office Hours Podcast. Questions or comments, I mentioned this at the beginning, mentioned at the end, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. And follow us on Twitter at VelaWood or on Instagram, excuse me, on Twitter at VelaWoodLaw. Whoever has at VelaWood, I'd like to talk to you. And on Instagram at VelaWood. Twitter, law at the end, Instagram, just at VelaWood. Okay, thanks. Talk to you soon. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at